X-Ray. Here we go, the inbound of McGinnis. Drive, stop, punt, shoot, short, no goal. And the Portland Trailblazers have won the world champion. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It is Friday, June 5th. I'm Jefferson Smith in Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day, June 5th, in the spirit of 1977, the Portland Trailblazers won the NBA championship. The Bill Walton Blazers beat the Dr. J 76ers. The series started with the Sixers winning the first two games, and then the Blazers won the last four straight. Bill Walton averaged 18.5 points, 19 rebounds, 5.2 assists, a steal, and 3.7 blocks for the series. Winning finals MVP with nobody knowing that the next year he would get injured, get faulty medical treatment, and end up creating a curse that left the Portland Trailblazers without a championship for another 40 years. Today on The Local, your quick six, a focus on local protests with Alex Zelinsky of the Portland Mercury, and finally our interview with Senator Lou Frederick of District 22. Senator Frederick provides a historical perspective on policies for police reform and talks about the People of Color Caucus reform proposals for the next legislative session. First up, it's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. School resource officers from the Portland Police Bureau will no longer be on public school campuses in three city school districts. Joanne Bowman proposed it on Wednesday. The school districts proposed it Thursday morning. And on Thursday afternoon in a press conference, Mayor Ted Wheeler announced that the Portland Police Bureau's entire school resource officer unit, called the Youth Services Division, cops in schools, will be disbanded. That means Portland Public Schools as well as the David Douglas and Parker Rose School Districts. Remember, Portland Public Schools is not all of Portland Public Schools. The officers will keep their jobs. They'll be assigned to other roles within the police bureau. And Wheeler added that the $1 million currently dedicated to the unit will be reallocated. Didn't say where it'd be reallocated. Did say a community-driven process would be used to determine it. Wheeler said he had made the decision to disband the unit earlier in the week, but had waited until Thursday to make it public. He said he wanted to inform the SROs first, the officers first. In a memo to district leaders Thursday morning, Superintendent Guadalupe Guerrero outlined plans to support students through, and I'm quoting, positive relationships, support, and affirming school culture and climate. That Police Youth Services Division, it's been in operation since 1999. According to the Bureau, the disbanding of the unit is effective immediately. And on Thursday, Governor Kate Brown ordered all state flags at Oregon public institutions to be flown at half-staff in honor of George Floyd. And the quote from Governor Brown, we lower the Oregon flag to half-staff to recognize the profound loss of life, one that affects us all. As we mourn the loss of George Floyd, let us remember the many black lives that have been taken by unnecessary violence. And let us commit ourselves and our country to fundamental change. Daily dose of data, 4,474 cases is the current count, 159 total deaths. In Washington, 22,484 cases, 1,135 deaths. One of the projections on covid19.healthdata.org is that Oregon will have very few more deaths. One question remains, will the protest activity, in fact, increase the trajectory of COVID-19 cases? And Governor Kate Brown on Thursday approved 26 counties to move to phase two of her reopening plan, starting as soon as today. Deschutes, Jefferson, and Umatilla counties have applied for Phase 2. The following six counties have not yet applied for Phase 2. Clackamas, Hood River, Lincoln, Marion, Polk, and Washington. Multnomah County has not yet applied for Phase 1. The county is expected to submit their application today. And on Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority began reporting coronavirus outbreaks in workplaces statewide. The workplace with the most cases? The Oregon State Penitentiary, with 167 confirmed cases. The most recent outbreak? Bob's Red Mill in Milwaukee. 
There are 19 cases in that outbreak. Other workplaces with the larger numbers, Towns and Farms, 93 cases, National Frozen Foods in Albany, 41 cases, and Portland's VA Medical Center with 34 cases. Last week, Oregonians filed 12,196 claims for unemployment benefits. While that's a lot, it is the lowest number of initial claims since public health measures began putting people out of work in March. The peak in initial claims, that was the week of March 22nd to 28th. 88,600 claims for regular unemployment benefits that week. And the state employment department is considering bringing in the National Guard. Acting Director David Gerstenfeld said at a press briefing Wednesday, remember he's new, in the last few days, I'm quoting, we've started discussions with the National Guard about potentially having them help us call people about their claims. That's different than like police protests. The idea would be to have the Guard update people with basic information on the status of their claims. That means they wouldn't need all the training on the intricacies of the unemployment compensation, etc. Gersenfeld said the department is also recruiting 100 volunteers from across state government to make similar calls. Meanwhile, and not the most important story, but in a fun one, the Blazers will have more games. The NBA Board of Governors voted 29 to 1 on a season restart plan. The Players Association has to vote a little bit later. The bottom eight teams are done for the season, but 22 teams will play eight more games. That includes the Blazers. That'll determine who makes the playoffs. The Blazers were the one no vote in the 29 to 1 vote. They wanted a 20 team restart, and they wanted a more innovative plan with the results to impact the draft lottery. According to reporting, Jody Allen, the managing owner, sister of the late Paul Allen, listened to the players' wishes. All the games will be in Orlando so that teams can be cordoned off in a COVID-proof bubble. Or at least reduce the risk of catching and spreading the virus by taking fewer planes, being near fewer people. Quarantine and training will start soon, with games to start July 31st. And it doesn't look like any of us get to go watch the games. Opponents of the way we typically do redistricting in Oregon are pursuing a new ballot initiative strategy. The pandemic has ended several would-be initiative campaigns because organizers can't send canvassers out to gather the signatures. But backers of a proposal to take redistricting out of the hands of the legislature are not giving up. What are they going to do? They're going to try to get the signatures through the mail or the Internet. Common Cause is one of the government watchdog groups pushing to create a nonpartisan commission to redraw congressional and legislative district lines. Pandemic aside, the coalition already faces an uphill battle going up against political power. The initiative wasn't cleared for signature gathering until early April when the whole state was under strict lockdown orders, and they need nearly 150,000 valid signatures from registered voters by the July 2nd deadline. A new update on tolling on the I-5 in Portland. According to Brendan Finn, director of ODOT's new Office of Urban Mobility and Mega Project Delivery. Holy mackerel. Tolling on I-5 should be up and running by the time the project is finished later this decade. ODOT is moving towards tolling on a stretch of I-205 that goes through Oregon City and West Lynn. According to the agency, besides raising money, the two congestion pricing programs hope to bring something else to the table. Provide faster trips, encourage a bunch of drivers to find alternatives. Uh-huh. The road work approved by the legislature in 2017 was projected to cost $450 million. Now the price tag is expected to rise above $800 million. Keep track of those numbers, by the way. Here's the key quote. Right now, we are on track to have the congestion pricing system up and running by the time the construction of the Rose Quarter project is completed, end quote. That's a big deal, by the way. That's the money quote. For many proponents of congestion pricing, the point is to do it before a project because that might impact the congestion and shape what is actually needed. For ODOT, this tells us that it's full steam ahead, with protests legitimately drawing most of the attention. 
And some good news. The Portland Protest Bail Fund is covering bail and other expenses for Portland protesters. As of Wednesday, it's raised over $500,000. The fundraiser was organized by the Portland General Defense Committee, a 103-year-old group started to defend workers facing legal attacks for their political beliefs. Today, the group has broadened its focus to community organizing and direct action. Police reports show at least 86 protesters have been arrested since Friday. About three-quarters of them have been released. The organization plans to bail out all arrested demonstrators except for those believed to be part of a known white supremacist neo-Nazi or alt-right organization. According to Amelia Cates, elected officer and organizer of the fundraiser, the organization has bailed out eight protesters so far, which has cost about $8,000. Means they have like $492,000 left, according to my arithmetic. Funds raised will be distributed directly to protesters facing legal action, prioritizing people of color, those who are immunocompromised, identify as transgender, or who have marginalized identity. If you want to donate, you can look up PDX Protest Bail Fund on GoFundMe.com. And let's not stop there. Many organizations in Portland fighting systemic oppression and racism. We've plugged some before. Here's that list. A little adjust to the Black Resilience Fund, Portland NAACP, the Urban League of Portland, Kairos PDX, the Black Lives Matter Portland Chapter, Generational Resistance PDX, and Don't Shoot Portland. Volunteer, donate, become a sustaining member, and follow up. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury, has been on the streets of Portland covering local protests, city response, and next steps. She joins us now with her firsthand account. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. First of all, just thank you, because I, from, from Bob to, to everybody you mentioned, but particularly to you, for all of us who want to know what's going on, right, who have some degree of FOMO, and, and, and I even mean that, right? It feels weird for me. Like I'm, I'm essential okay. personnel here. If I put myself, that means like I'm in the studio right now. I'm touching stuff. Now we know contact services aren't as dangerous, maybe as we thought they were a few weeks ago, but that means you know I'm not hermetically sealed in bubble wrap. But I should be a little bit careful about going around a whole bunch of people because I, I am not right. cordoned off all day. And there, and it's weird for me to have protests going on, and for me like not to be there. So, so I'm just so grateful at what you have been doing so we can all tune into you. What have you learned about Portland in the last week? Um, that's a big question. I mean, I think the most important thing I've learned is that um, protesters in Portland right now are not a monolith. People of color in Portland right now who are protesting are not monolithic either. There are so many different perspectives on how uh, to engage or not engage with the police and how to protest uh, and how to show solidarity and how to show allyship. Um, there's so much nuance that I think is really important to uh, understand, but also really important, really hard to explain without kind of being on the ground and seeing different interactions with different protesters and with the police. Uh, give an example of it. Give an example of an interaction that surprised you or that you learned something from. Well, I mean, there's these uh, there's a, a lot of a lot of members of these demonstrations who are really really eager to not um, agitate the police or really like engage in the police with with the police at all uh, and kind of focus on their. Um, you know, on, on things being just more of a rally and more of a place to like talk about, uh, to, to, to host speakers and to, um, you know, empower folks rather than go and, and kind of go up against this fence, this barricade that the police have kind of put around the Justice Center and, and other, you know, uh, government buildings downtown and, and kind of 
provoke them in, in different ways and, and, you know, ask, uh, ask for accountability directly to the police. Have you, did you get tear gassed? Uh, yes. I did. Or, or is Donald, I think uh, Donald Trump said it's not tear gas. It's like chemical smoky irritant or something. I don't know. Right. It's no big deal. Um, yeah. It's, it's C, uh, oh, wait, CS gas. I've been learning a lot about these different. CS uh, gas. That's what it's called. Yeah. That makes yeah, it sound worse, by the way. Right. I know. It's, it's, and I tried to look up what CS stood for and it's, um, a, a, a chemical abbreviation. I cannot remember. It's very long, um, but I mean to be fair, it's a deterrent, and so the the purpose is to last for a very short amount of time, and then to end up to get people out and get, irritate people immediately, and then it really dies down pretty quickly. Unlike pepper spray, which seems to linger, it sticks around for a while. Didn't. It's like yeah. like mace mace makes you want to die. Pepper spray, right. pepper spray, you really really hate it, and it lasts a long time. CS gas really bugs you and then dissipates. Is that fair? This other night, police announced that they were going to tear gas folks and they were going to, you know, shoot munitions in the crowd to, to, to dissipate the crowd. But instead of it coming from where the officer loudspeaker and the, um, you know, the sound truck was coming from where everyone was looking at, the tear gas came from behind. It, 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 it essentially kind of trapped folks in in this one block where 7-Eleven is downtown by the courthouse. It blocked folks in. So they, yeah, they, they either had to just be pressed up against the police fence where there was also stuff coming from after the fact or run through this cloud of, of tear gas. And I mean, I think it's important to note that, yeah, there were folks in the crowd close up to the fence who were extremely pissed off. Some of them were throwing stuff like water bottles over the fence at police. And then there were folks who were farther back, like maybe a block or so, who just who knew that things were getting tense, but wanted to observe. We're still there in solidarity. Just wanted to be like maybe a little bit safer, so they wouldn't get, um, uh, you know, any of the effects of whatever the police were going to shoot out, uh, myself included. Um, I try really not. I, I try to not be right at the front. I don't really think that's essential right now. And so people who are with families, people who are kind of farther back, just seeing, observing what was going on, those were the folks who were hit with tear gas first. And that, I think, really changed the, the tone of the entire, that, that was the first time tear gas was used that night, and it changed the entire tone in that people who were maybe interested in being peaceful and interested in kind of being open to, to you know, the, the police looking out for them, immediately saw police as their enemies. They're like, what the hell, you guys kind of came around our snuck around tear gas folks who were just standing and observing what's going on. You know, I think that only truly added uh, fuel to the fire. And yeah, how is the de-escalation going? Have you seen, we get differing reports. We see, mm-hmm. the, obviously we saw what happened in Washington, D.C., where uh, where mm-hmm. Donald Trump tear gassed a bunch of people so he could hold a Bible upside down that he never read in front of a church he doesn't go inside to. Uh, and here it seems like there have been mixed reports. It seems like it's been getting, you know, it gets worse late at night. How has it been for the last couple nights? And how are the police doing in terms of de-escalation? What are tactics you recognize that seem to be useful? Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like the police are struggling to find the best way to de-escalate as well, and they're being open about that. I went to a 
short press conference yesterday, kind of right before the protest last night began, with some of the leaders in the um, in PPB who are you know in charge of bringing out these these vans of threat cops and deciding when to shoot munitions into the crowd. Um, and he, Lieutenant uh, Ron Shanig spoke and he said that he was in the like kind of at the end of his, like, he wasn't sure really uh, what else could work to effectively de-escalate some of the stuff he was seeing. And uh, honestly, I haven't seen any, I haven't seen much new um, that's, you know, maybe the police have been trying to to use to de-escalate aside from, you know, shooting these different, either whether it's smoke, or well, they call them distraction devices or, you know, flashbangs or uh, crowd control agents. So basically just different smoke and gas. Distraction device. Distraction device. That sounds, it sounds like a cat toy. A a distraction (laughs) device. It sounds very benevolent. Right. And that's, I mean, that is uh, a, a nice term for what, um, is referred to as a flashbang grenade, which is a grenade tossed into a crowd that makes a huge loud noise and a bright flash. And I would not compare that to a cat toy um, in in any way. And, and it, it should not be allowed as a cat toy, to be clear. Before we have to wrap, I want to talk about what the conversation is now in city council. Sarah Ionarone came out with her own uh, urgings, challenge uh, for Mayor Wheeler. It included ban chokeholds, carotid restrictions, and the neck-to-knee maneuver that killed George Floyd. It included, or includes, banning the use of chemical weapons at demonstrations, including tear gas, includes defunding militarization of important police, and it includes requiring de-escalation training and tactics. What are the discussions happening that you're aware of in city council right now? So the interesting thing is that this is all happening in the middle of um, uh, the 20... 2020-21 budget discussions right. in the city, um, so, which oh, the fiscal point. year, well, that needs to be voted on next next week. The fiscal year begins in July. Um, and so a big chunk of that is this, you know, hefty slice of funding that goes to the Portland Police Bureau. And initially, uh, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty had, pro- you know, for a while she's been proposing cutting a few big programs that have historically been discriminatory against people of color. And this year she was was planning on it and then kind of backpedaled because of the COVID, uh, the need to put money towards COVID stuff and just the need to not really make this a reform moment um, and kind of, you know, found an agreement with, with Ted Wheeler to say, hey, okay, let's, let's, let's give a little bit more time until the fall to talk about this. But then she, she <laughs> I mean, you know, a week later and so much has changed and she's using this moment now. Yesterday she called on council, she brought it back up again. She's like, okay, we need to defund these three programs, the school resource officers, you know, put cops on, in public school campuses, the transit police, which historically discriminated against people of color and houseless people, and uh, the gun, or the, yeah, gun violence reduction team, which has a history of uh, indiscriminately pulling over uh, people of color, especially black men, and um, you know, profiling them as, as gang members. And so that is now back on the table. Um, the remarkable thing is it seems like there is there is a lot more support or at least like inclination towards support from the three other city council members than there has been in a long time, including more remarkably from, from Mayor Ted Wheeler, who is the police commissioner. Um, and that vote is going to happen on June 10th. But I want to say thank you so much for taking the time, Alex Linsky, and thank you so much for your reporting. Of course, thank you for having me.
an interview with Senator Lou Frederick. Lou has served in Salem as a House member and now Senator for North and Northeast Portland. From his early days in Salem, he was moving police reform policy. Jefferson Smith and DJ Ambush interview Senator Frederick with a focus on legislative priorities and creating change across communities. Hello, everyone. This is DJ Ambush of The Numbers and X-Ray FM. Senator Lou Frederick represents the North and Northeast Portland in Senate District 22. Senator Frederick has served as senator since 2017, previously serving in the Oregon House for eight years. Frederick has been a newscaster for nearly two decades and always an educator. Also, Lou Frederick is a member and a leader of the People of Color Caucus in the Oregon Legislature, and that caucus just came out with a set of three legislative proposals to grapple with now and work to pass in the next legislative session. We'll talk about that. Welcome, Senator Frederick. Well, thank you very much. Good to see you, folks. Good to see you. So first question, how, how are you doing, Senator, in, you know, these COVID times? Well, you know, these COVID times uh, have all sorts of uh, impact on me. Uh, I've had, unfortunately, six of my six people that I know, friends who have died as a result of the COVID wow. situation. Uh, I have um, three, uh, I have four, basically, um, nieces and nephews who are working in ER uh, rooms around the country. So I worry about them as well. Mm-hmm. We're in a we're in a moment right now, and attention can be focused on this particular moment. Is there anything in particular that you would want us to focus on while everything is going on? Well, the issue is uh, the issues are accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issues are um, how we deal with with respect and how we are how we are not only being fair but how we're actually um, having an impact on on the, the, the general public and the world. I, I think that there's a, the, the basic issue is trust. And mm-hmm. we have been struggling with understanding what that trust is about and how to, how to capture it. Because it's not a matter of, of regaining it. It's a matter of capturing it for, for the time. For, for, for people in the black community and other minority communities, uh, the trust has never really been there. We've hoped for it at times but it's not ever really been there uh, because we know that at any given time, uh, things could be revert. We could revert to once again being uh, the other people or the other uh, humans around um, rather than just being, uh, just being generally human. So we, we need to, to establish a new, a new approach and that's going to be difficult. That's going to be very difficult. And we know that. But the good news is, I think a number of other people now now know that. Uh, you know, it was nice to it was good to see the the thousands uh, along the, um, the the Burnside Bridge yesterday, uh, saying that they that they recognize that it's it's good to see the the number of of letters and emails and speeches and other things that are out there right now. People saying, okay. We've got it. We, 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 we at least understand a little bit. of. We don't know everything. We don't know exactly what we're going to do. But we now understand that, yes, this is real. This is a problem that we have to deal with. And we can't continue to use rhetoric to say we're going to try to do it. We've got to actually do it. So that's, that's an important thing. That's, that's, um, that's um, encouraging. Let's put it that way. You mentioned the protesters. What message do you have to the people who laid down on the Burnside Bridge, who've been engaged uh, on sidewalks, in streets, in parks, and Pioneer Square over the last nearly a week now? Well, first of all, I say thank you. 
Um, that's one thing that I will say. The other thing is, uh, this is uh, demonstrations are good, but they are not enough. Uh, I've I've been in demonstrations since I was about eight years old. Uh, my first tear gas was when I was about eight years old uh, in, uh, in in Baton Rouge, um, Louisiana, and uh, I can you know we can do a lot of things with demonstrations, but you then have to take the next step and do other things. You need to take the next step and actually have an impact and go move on to laws and regulations, to, uh, to simple things that, you, that individuals have to do. Like for instance, just acknowledging people. When they, when they are, when you walk into a, an elevator and you see a, uh, an African-American man, boy, girl, woman uh, there, just nodding and saying hello rather than saying, rather than either looking as though you're afraid or not acknowledging their presence. Understanding those simple things can, can make a huge difference. We have, uh, understanding that, that, that the rhetoric that we've heard for years about um, what's going on in terms of, of jobs uh, or what's going on in terms of, of housing uh, or education or healthcare, these are not these are no longer, that can no longer be um, um, dismissed as just ramblings of someone. We now know that this is in fact real. And we know this both because of the, the recent issues in terms of, of death uh, by, at the hands of police, but also because of the COVID crisis. That has, that has pointed that out so clearly that we have, a, um, we have issues of, of how we we actually uh, deal with health care and, and economic security and all of these things. All of those things are, are part of it. So w it's no longer uh, a mystery. It's no longer a, oh, well, this is, this is just uh, somebody whining about something. We now know that this is real. And it is time for folks to not – I appreciate the demonstrations, especially those folks who are – uh, and, and who are not being distracted by some folks who want to distract us. Um, but the folks go in and actually take an action, and it doesn't have to be a huge action. It just needs to be a regular understanding that um, these are the issues that are, in fact, confronting your neighbors uh, and even folks you don't know who are across town, uh, that you need to do something about that. You mentioned the legislature. When you join the legislature, one of the and since you've been in the legislature, we've had far too few African American representatives in the House of the State Senate, and you have been a voice for police reforms and accountability. I think since your first term, what do you see now as the changing landscape of power, both maybe in reaction to uh, nationwide, even international protests, also in relationship to your uh, growing seniority in the legislature and to the change. Jeff Barker is now retiring from the state house. How do you see the landscape shifting for passing some of the stuff that you're working on? Well, let me back up just a little bit, because if, if you remember, I was, I ended up in the special session in 2010. My first session was a special session. Uh, it was a very bizarre thing because I came in at the end of October is when I was, when I was appointed and um, they, all the bills that everyone had were already set. So I didn't have much to deal with. But 
I don't know if you remember this or not, Jefferson, but one night at the end of the session, there were, we were up in the house lounge. This is exactly what I was thinking about. Go on. And we were sitting around in the house lounge, sitting around the tables there. And, you know, there was a, a, a lull in the conversation. And Phil Barnhart from Eugene looked over at me. And it was, this was after the Aaron Campbell shooting. He looked over at me and he said, what are we going to do about those Portland police? <clears throat> and, and he said that to me. And it occurred to me a couple of things. One is, uh, if I had not been there, would that conversation have come up? I don't know. I don't think so. I, I doubt it. I doubt if it would have come up. Then, but that's your impression, right? I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to project that. But my impression was that that conversation. He didn't. He didn't ask the room. He asked you. And it's right. one example of why representation matters so much. At least that was what I took away. I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, that's exactly right, and that's and that's so. I, I remember that as as part of a of a, a a major part of the story of what I've been doing. So once I once we we I began that then I, I ran officially ran for office uh, to be elected uh, for that that next for that November. But during that time, I spent a lot of time putting together a list of probably eleven or twelve, maybe fifteen bills that I wanted to deal with, and most of them dealt with uh, use of force, um, uh, body cameras, um, the ability for folks to use their cell phones and, and film what was going on, uh, profiling of one form or another, all of those things we, I brought up. What I'm interested in, what I'm very curious about is what, what were some of the concerns from the people that were pushing back on, on these legislation that you were trying to push through? Oh, there were different concerns. Some of them felt uh, there's a sort of a basic concern that that we are finally getting, I think, um, um, dismissed, which was, um, as I said earlier, I think it's one of those things where some some folks thought that, well, you know, that doesn't happen to anybody. I don't understand. You must have been doing something wrong. Um, You know, that that's that's the that's the, the, the line. So that's that's one of the sort of basic um, con- concepts that you run into anyway. For others, it was things that you are somehow um, uh, uh, you're not supporting the people who who really who have tough jobs, and you just aren't really supporting them by by questioning whether they're questioning their judgment. Uh, mm-hmm. They're they're trying to make snap decisions, and you are you are you are going to uh, hamper their ability to to actually do their job well. That was one of the, that was a sort of a constant kind of thing. And the other, I mean, the, the other basic kinds of issues were, this doesn't happen to me, so how could it happen to you? Mm. Can I ask you, what are your thoughts on the current citywide curfew? Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, we have some folks who really want to distract uh, from what the real issues are, and it, it, we have to figure out how we deal with those with those folks. This is a systemic thing too, right? This this the systemic issue regarding the police and and law enforcement is one thing, but we have a we have a systemic issue that that involves both politics and a group that is determined to be as disruptive as possible. I want to get back to the proposals that you're 
uh, that you're advancing. So now there is this moment when a lot of people, a lot of Phil Barnharts are saying, hey, Lou, what do we do? You came out with three things. I want to go, let's go over them. What, if, which one would you want to pick first? What would you say if you could only pass one thing? And I'm guessing there are going to be a lot of people who want to pass a slate of stuff, right? Anything they think might have some impact. But if you're going to pick one, where do you want to start? I think that the, I think the arbitration bill is going to, pay, going to come, come forward uh, in any sort of special session at the end of June. I hope, or in June, and I think that will pass pretty quickly. Uh, that's one of the issues that, that people want to be able to deal with. But there are um, issues related to the definition of excessive use of force. We need to really look at that and determine just what that means. And then there's issues regarding um, investigation. When you do have an ex- a use of force, excessive use of force, who does the investigation? Um, should it be it, it shouldn't be the, the police department itself because there's clearly a conflict of interest there. Senator Frederick, thank you so much for spending this time. Thanks for your service. And, and I really appreciate you taking this time. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thanks to Alex and thanks to Senator Frederick for joining the local. Big thanks to the production team. Editor extraordinaire did it in the first try that time. Will Romy, writers DJ Ambush, Casey Colton, Kate K, Julia Oppenheimer, Joey Palchik, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, Jamie Zangwill. And thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, Blazer's Edge, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Northwest News Network, the Portland Business Journal, Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Oregonian, the Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Street Roots, the Columbian, KGW, KTU, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. And to co-executive producer, Emily Gilliland. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. And if you got story ideas or groups who need shouts out, send us an email at thelocal@xray.fm. We are hanging together while we are apart. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you Monday. X-Ray.